Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame cruised to a 28-3 victory against a Brennan Armstrong-less Virginia on Saturday. The Irish return home this weekend for a senior day matchup with a struggling Georgia Tech team. With a clear path to 11-1 sitting in front of Notre Dame, the Irish are nudging their way back into the college football playoff discussion once again. Um, for a national perspective on the Irish, we wanted to check in with Bruce Feldman, a college football reporter for Fox Sports and writer for The Athletic, to pick his brain a little bit. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be on with you. Bruce, I wanted to start with something you wrote today with Marcus Freeman as a potential candidate for Virginia Tech's head coaching job um, that just came open. I'm curious, how, how serious of a candidate do you think he will be and what kind of head coaching market do you think there will be for Marcus Freeman this offseason? I think he's a legit candidate for some power five jobs. And this is a good one. Uh, You have a guy who was a hot commodity, as you guys know, last year on the coordinator front. Uh, He's a guy that I imagine if Luke Fickle ever were to leave Cincinnati, that he would be one of the first calls having, you know, the work he did not only running the defense, but helping develop and recruit there. Uh, He's one of the top recruiters in the country right now, you know, where he's ranked on, on the recruiting rankings. So there's a lot to like. Uh, I know he can be he can be patient because he's you know mid thirties, but if Virginia Tech really wants to pursue him, I don't know how you'd say no to that if you're him. Um, I could see a couple other jobs coming open that he could be a candidate. There's quite honestly, there are just going to be more vacancies than there are capable, qualified, proven commodities out there. And I don't know how many coordinators that may end up with jobs but he would be high on the list. I mean, he's very well regarded and I could definitely see it, you know, no matter what happens the rest of the way. Bruce, what, how many jobs when this all finishes out, including the ones that have been filled, what do you think that that number is going to look like and why are we seeing so many this cycle? I think we could see up, I could see, you know, over 30, maybe 35 to 40 this year, because we obviously have some good jobs open now. You're going to have some more that are going to spring open, not because of anything negative that's happened other than 
coaches are leaving to other jobs and that creates that domino effect. So that's what I think is, is where we're headed. Now, the reason is twofold. One, you're coming off a truncated year where last year, yes, Auburn made a coaching change and Tennessee did, but there was a bunch of other schools, including Virginia Tech, that were close to making a coaching change and didn't. So it's kind of got backlogged. And then on top of that, you have the early signing period. And I think that has forced people to scramble from a timing standpoint to, to try to get out in front of it. Um, so I think those things and just schools are way less patient now than they were, you know, a few years ago. The fact that we've seen a head coach who won a national title less than two years ago get fired basically at midseason is uh, kind of shows you how crazy this whole business is. Bruce, I'm curious, what, how big of an advantage is it to to make that firing in the middle of a season? Um, I, I know it seems like they're getting someone in place before the early signing period seems important, but it also sort of opens up this window where the kids have certainly no idea what's going on until that new head coach's name. So is is it is it as big of an advantage as teams may think it is by doing it so early? I think it depends on like circumstance, because on one hand you had Texas tech, it came open pretty early. And then like a week later, a bigger job in the same footprint TCU came open. And all of a sudden, if you're you're Texas tech, you're like Sonny Dykes, his dad was a legendary coach here in Lubbock. He's done a really good job at SMU. This makes a lot of sense. We want a guy with Texas ties. He's a proven head coach. And then TCU comes open. It's not far from where he's coaching. Now he actually worked at TCU on Gary Patterson staff. And all of a sudden now Texas Tech has to pivot and go hire somebody without head coaching experience, albeit a lot of ties to Texas football. So I, I think it's really did it help USC to make to rip the bandaid off and finally get rid of Clay Helton and have, you know, an interim for basically, you know, 80 percent of the season. I'm not sure. I mean, recruit, you know, they've lost recruits, including this week, a five star you know, right. defensive back commit. But <sighs> You know, I think sometimes it's different circumstances for USC. I think it's like a lot of their fan base was going to be checked out after the way they looked early in the season and just were like, hey, we're done with Clay Helton. We're not coming back. They got embarrassed by Stanford. And then they made that move. I I think there's no right answer, but I definitely think that the, the early signing period has has is forcing people to scramble like they hadn't before. Bruce, if you had a guess, who do you think ends up at USC and who do you think ends up at LSU? Uh, if I had to guess right now, I just did a column about Dave Aranda, who is a L.A. area native. His brother is still a high school basketball coach in this area. Uh, he went to college here. I think if I had to guess, that would be my guess. And right now that's all it is. Because I know USC has interest in him. I don't know if Dave will leave Waco after just two years there. I don't know if he's if he thinks that's the right fit for him and his family. That I don't know, but right now, as we're t t you know talking about this on the 16th of November, that would be my guess. On LSU, you know they they swung swung hard a bunch of times for Jimbo Fisher. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. I know there's interest in Mel Tucker. It, you know, and I don't know if he's going to leave. He's worked there before. He's very well thought of by some key people. I don't know. I mean, I could still see Mel Tucker. I don't know if Billy Napier, if they could, they could hire the guy from ULL and the Sun Belt at Louisiana State University. I just don't know if Scott Woodward would 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 sign off on that, but he might. I mean, at this point right now, 
if I were guessing, I would say it would be some kind of combination of maybe Napier, uh, Tucker one, Napier two, and then maybe Matt Campbell three, or maybe Matt Campbell two. Like, I still think people in the, in coaching circles know Matt Campbell's really good. He just did not have a, he's not having a great year at a place that's very tough to win at. Bruce, shifting over a little bit to the playoff conversation, which I know from listening to the Audible, you may not always love having those conversations. Uh, but but given how Notre Dame has has started its season, are you surprised that Notre Dame may be working its way back into the college football playoff picture? A little. I mean, quite honestly, if you had told me that they would be sputtering on offense, they had issues running the football for a while, and their best player – is going to miss mo- pretty much the second half of the season, or I mean, like what was it, five of the you know last you know five of twelve games, um, who's arguably you know one of the three best players in college football. I would be surprised, you know, and I would also be surprised that arguably the best win on their resume might be Purdue, you know, right. because Purdue has some nice wins. But you know, credit to Brian Kelly, we all know he's a terrific coach. He's got a good staff. I think they have they have managed it very well i what i'm interested in is last week there was a lot of chatter about wow how could the committee put michigan ahead of michigan state they had just had that game and michigan had lost like 10 days earlier and my thinking was all that stuff in the big 10 is going to play out you know mel tucker if they keep winning you can't snub them the issue I thought was setting up was maybe it's an Oregon, Ohio State precedent thing because you have a head to head, but it's also the Cincinnati, Notre Dame part of it. Cincinnati has struggled a little bit. Their schedule right now will get a little harder because they'll have some better teams with better records. But that game happened head to head. It was in South Bend. Didn't see like it was feel like it was that fluky that, you know, Cincinnati won that game. So does the committee, which just will hold its nose, I feel like, to give a group of five program, any credit, does the committee at some point flip Notre Dame in front if, if if it's still an undefeated Bearcats team? You know, I that wouldn't surprise me. The only thing is, you know, right now, I mean, I think I think you mentioned it, Tyler, like they whipped Virginia, but it was Virginia without Brendan Armstrong. They were terrible. Right. You're going to see a Georgia Tech team that's not very good. You're going to see a Stanford team that's awful. Like, I don't know what really is helping Notre Dame's cause here scheduling wise. Yes. I mean, you know, the Wisconsin win is going to look pretty good. You know, the further we get through it, it looks like obviously Purdue's decent win. Um, you know, USC, who knows what they're going to end up at. They're kind of sputtering. It's just not, you know, I, I think the next two weeks are going to do nothing for Notre Dame's strength of schedule, just because those two programs are such duds right now. Bruce, there's a couple of questions that I, plan to try to ask Gary Barta in the teleconference and I, and I'll, I'm going to throw them at you. One is the whole Kyle Hamilton thing. You know, the committee at times has said, okay, if you lose a great player and then you come back and you're a better team because that player is back, do you, do they weigh that in? Well, Hamilton will have, you won't see Hamilton play for Notre Dame before the selections are made. He's out until whatever the postseason game is. So does that make a difference on how the committee might look at Notre Dame as far as their strength of schedule? And this is a really would be a really deep dive for the committee, but they had six teams that had bye weeks before they played Notre Dame. And again, 
you know, my job is to find those splitting hair things that Notre Dame fans can latch on to. But I'm wondering if the committee would look at anything like that in terms of strength of schedule. I would think that they might look at that kind of detail. I don't know how much it's going to be convincing. You know, the Hamilton piece, I think, is a little more substantial because, like I said, I mean, I think he's one of the best players in college football. And the fact that he could come back, that makes them seem like they would be better um, or significantly better. I, I just come back to so much of the committee kind of roots onto the eyeball test. And Notre Dame is sitting there with one loss. I don't think they're I think they're going to end up at 11 and one. I just don't know like how much, you know, I hate the term upside, especially in this context, but like how much, you know, are you going to be able to impress anybody more than you have? Like right now they're sitting there and it's just, it just feels like there's something that is kind of under, it's like a little bit underwhelming to be honest. You know, it's just like, we see it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so Here's what I think they're up against. Look, if there's a two-loss Big 12 champ, I think Notre Dame will go ahead of them. If there's a one-loss Oklahoma State or Oklahoma, like neither neither of those teams I feel like have been particularly impressive. But if they manage to come out of the out of their 12 and 1, they probably would have a stronger resume. I say probably, I'm not convinced of it, but <laughs> probably would have a stronger resume than an 11 and 1 Notre Dame, but that could be a toss-up. But if they're definitely a two-loss team, then they're out. The ACC, there's nothing to me. There's nobody who can leapfrog Notre Dame. I could see the Big Ten beating each other up a little bit, you know. And then you have, you let's have say, Wisconsin win the Big Ten. Yeah, that would be huge for Notre Dame, right? Yeah. So obviously, it would be. I think it'd be huge for Notre Dame if Houston or SMU can knock off Cincinnati. Obviously, that wouldn't wouldn't help them on one end, where it's like, hey, you lost to a team that's not up top five team, but it's still, that would knock Cincinnati out of the mix. I think what, if you're hoping to get in for Notre Dame, it's just like, I I don't think the committee honestly would take Notre Dame over a two loss Alabama team, even unless Alabama lost by 50 in the SEC title game. And and Alabama is interesting to me. I mean, look, Eric, you went down the minutia route with your, you know, bi-week thing. I'm going to go, I'm going to do the same here. Alabama is interesting to me because Last week when Mississippi State made that frantic comeback and ended up beating Auburn on the road, Auburn then, that game to me in the Iron Bowl isn't going to carry much weight for Alabama. Alabama would then have beaten a five-loss Auburn team. Yes, so what? Then then all of a sudden you're Alabama. If they lose to Georgia, you'd have two losses and your best win is, is over Ole Miss. But after that, your best win isn't very good. And you got two games where... They barely survived against Florida. We now know Florida stinks. And they were held to six rushing yards at home and barely survived against LSU. That was playing with like half a half a roster in that game. So I get it. It's Alabama. It's Nick Saban. They won all the national titles. That did not happen. You know, like these things do not happen in a vacuum. I still think the committee would end up saying, yeah, we still think they're better than Notre Dame, even though they have two losses. And even though they only have really one quality win, I just think they would look at it and say, you know what? They have better wins on their schedule and their allergies. It's just not like anyone's watched the Notre Dame game and kind of gone, gotten wowed by them at any point. Well, let, let me throw a scenario at you. Would the committee ever do this? Would, would it just freak out too many people 
if let's say Wisconsin wins the Big Ten and there's a two-loss Big 12 champ and Oregon loses to Utah one of the two times, okay? So then you could end up with Georgia, Alabama, Cincinnati, and Notre Dame. Would would people freak having one Power Five conference in a playoff? Yeah, I think they would. I think they <laughs> would. Um, that is kind of a doomsday-ish scenario because obviously if Wisconsin wins the Big Ten title, they would be at what, 10 and three um, with some bad losses. They would have been blown out. So I don't see that happening. Um, I don't know how you could take a two loss Ohio state or a two loss, let's say Michigan state in there, or even Michigan over. I don't know what they would do. I don't see that. I I think that would be hard for them to stomach, but that might be, that is a little bit of a doomsday scenario, I guess. And it's been that kind of weird year in college football. I'm not saying those are the four best teams, but, you know, I could say uh, them seeing, okay, let's get this 12-team playoff thing done now. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tough sell. And honestly, I don't know how, you know, I'm not sure how many people want to see two rematches. Yeah. Bruce, Especially one that just happened a couple of weeks earlier. And it was like, I don't know who suffers in that. Like, I mean, not say like you know the fans who like, but I don't know which which conference or teams are most aggrieved because even a two loss, especially if Oregon loses in the in the Pac-12 title and they're not the Pac-12 champ and they're a two loss team with a with a good win at Ohio State, and nothing else in a in a down lead. You know, it's just I, I'm that's that's probably the worst picture to paint, right? And Utah's favored this weekend. Yeah, and they have to beat them twice now. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I could be wrong, but I don't think that's going to happen. Bruce, I'm curious. How invested do you get in these weekly rankings, and do you think it's worth all the dissecting and lesson learning that we attempt to make each week? Evidently, I get way more invested than I should because <laughs> there's been times where I've gotten really annoyed about it. I don't even like – I honestly do not have a dog in this fight at all, you know, like where it's not like – it's not like, like I'm drinking buddies with Luke fickle or anything like that. Like I just (laughs) like one thing that's a, that's a challenge for me. And I'm now old enough to realize, to be aware of it is just like, I have this like rigid sense of right and wrong. And there's certain things where like, I'm the person who like, if it's happened on the field, I can't get, I can't unsee it, you know? So Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't want to hear, well, the Vegas odds makers would have such and such a favorite. Yeah. I don't care because that game happened. And once we start saying, well, yeah, but you know, like they're, you know, this is the more complete team. I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, it's like, this isn't baseball or the NBA where you have a huge volume of games. There aren't there, but when you do have teams play head to head, you, it has to matter because if it doesn't, what's the point of it, then go play bad schedules where you're not risking anything. You know, if like Oregon gets, if Oregon does go 12 and one, and somehow gets behind a, any Big Ten champ um, after they went to Ohio State and they whipped Ohio State. It wasn't like, oh, they, you know, it was like they ran all over that defense. And they did it, by the way, without, you want to talk about Kyle Hamilton. Oregon did it without the arguably the best player in the country in Kayvon Thibodeau. So, and they were had a bunch of other guys injured in that game or sideline for that game. So, I, I don't know. It, it's... <laughs> we shouldn't care about this thing like week to week. Cause it honestly, it doesn't matter that right. much. it matters a little. And, you know, it's like, we're parsing what Gary Barta says 
And I, you know, I feel bad that I think less of Gary Barda on Tuesday <laughs> nights because he'll say, I have great respect for such and such. And then he'll completely, you know, undermine it with something. It's like, yeah, I, you know, it's like, I really would love liverwurst. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't be caught dead eating it, you know, kind of like, it's like just it's lip service to that because I think sometimes whoever's in that position as the committee chair is stuck defending stuff that maybe they don't feel right. Yeah. I, it was funny because I, I always participate in the teleconference and ask Gary a question. And last week I asked him one and, and then I looked at the transcript of it, of his answer. And I said, he just gave me a word salad. He didn't say anything. <laughs> and, and I got, you know, I got my shorts and a nod about Minnesota being in the first ranking. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Who loses to Bowling Green at that point? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my last question for you, Bruce, is Notre Dame, you know, with the way they're recruiting um, and just being able to possibly put up an 11 and one season and kind of a transition year for them. Do you see them having a realistic shot at a national title or at least being competitive in that kind of platform in the next two or three years? It depends. It depends how good, you know, the young quarterback from San Diego really is like if Tyler is a, if he can continue to develop, because obviously he can do, you know, definitely do some things in the run game. I feel like they are recruiting. I don't say they're recruiting better because they were, they've recruited well, but it seems like they have taken it up a notch um, I don't feel like they're capped at being like the fourth or fifth best team in the country. Like at some point, there's going to be a few players who are going to turn out to be, you know, a Kyle Hatt. Like one thing Notre Dame really, Kyron Williams is a really good, you don't have to tell you guys this, but he's a really good all around back. I feel like Notre Dame has had occasionally, there'll be like a Will Fuller or they've had tight ends, obviously, but it's like some skill guy who's not a tight end who's like, ooh, that guy can take over a game. And the quarterback play has been good, but not great. And I don't, I feel like their margin for error is very, is, is very slim when they get into these games, you know, it's just like you have these super powered teams who end up in it, whether it's one of those Alabama Clemson teams or LSU when they were loaded, you know, like Georgia has a bunch of like Marvel characters in the defense. Now (laughs) it's just like, I, I feel like, Notre Dame is a very good team and but just sometimes they have they just need you know have not been great and that's what it takes to beat an Alabama or a Clemson or sometimes an Ohio State or you have to be perfect that night or near perfect and I don't I mean I think it's possible like he has got them obviously Brian Kelly he's got them you know very close the issue has just been they just haven't had maybe there are a couple of players away um and it's not to say they can't win it, but to me, it feels like to some degree, what we sometimes see in the big 10, whether it's Iowa or one of these teams who's really good and they're probably better on, they're better than, than those, you know, those teams like on the other side of the ball, meaning they're, they're a little better on offense. So, you know, they're able to avoid having a, having a C game and lose or, you know, kind of thing, but to, to win a national title, I mean, they need they need somebody to 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 really turn into like this guy's you know top five pick guy, and I just don't know if they have a, you know enough of those guys in the pipeline right now. 
Bruce, in the preseason, Isaiah Foskey from Notre Dame was on your freaks list and inside the top 50, and he's gone out and had – I feel had, good about that one. Yeah, nine, nine sacks this season. I was curious, how do you – do you – do you sort of keep track of those guys in your freak list during the season to, to sort of validate where the, the opinions that you got during, in the, in the off season? I definitely do. Um, you know, like I think about them a bunch. I mean, you know, it's like you get a lot of Intel from coaches and strength coaches and those guys are so, especially strength coaches are so close to seeing what's what right. not to say it's always that way, but I definitely keep an eye on it. You know, like, I'm not surprised Aiden Hutchinson's been an All-American. I heard that from NFL scouts who were, you know, visiting the program and talking to people. Then I started talking to people there and asked them the questions I was hearing. And so it's a great, um, it's it's a kind of a great window into what I think is what we're going to probably see from some of these guys. It doesn't always work out that way, but I feel like more times than not, you know, it's like the, like it's this, uh, offensive tackle from Northern Iowa who like everybody's buzzing about like, you know, now he's a, people think he's a first round pick and he's going to blow up the senior bowl. And it's just like those, um, I feel like that is become the, the best thing I do. It's not a writing story, meaning like you guys right. know, it's just like, there's no like crafty lead or you're not, not like agonizing over word choice or anything like that. But just in terms of, it's like a massive volume of reporting and talking. And it's the one thing that I was like, um, you know, I just like so invested into it. So that's, that's why, yes, I know exactly, you know, like I, I do, I do take pride in seeing what he's doing. I'm glad you brought him up. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Speaking of your work, is there any other recent content uh, that you'd like to promote before we let you go? No, it's been a lot of coaching search stories. So unless you want to know, like Marcus <laughs> Freeman's mentioned in Virginia Tech, the, like who, who I'm hearing Virginia Tech is going to look at or who I'm hearing Washington is going to look at, um, that's the extent of it. Like right now, I, my, my head is spinning from all of the AD stuff and coaching search stuff. So it's like, and yet there's only like three weeks left of the season. So, or regular season, yeah. Well, all right, Bruce, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Thank you. By the way, one of you guys gave me a cool uh, gif that I ended up retweeting from high school football there where it was snowing sideways. I think it was you, Tyler, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe you retweeted your somebody's uh, camera guy. John Fennerin's um, LaVille. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yes, it was, yeah, snowing sideways on Friday night. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and as somebody who grew up in upstate New York, I love seeing it. I missed, I missed being one of those kids who would play tackle football in the snow. I live in California, so it's kind of weak that I, that I love it so much because I don't want to be anywhere near it. I just want to watch it on the internet and watch it on TV. Well, you should know that Finn, which is what we call him, he was happy to know that Bruce Feldman saw it and retweeted it. So, so it was a you gave hey, him a good gift for him. Like I'm sure, I'm sure he was not out there in shorts and a t-shirt. So <laughs> the least I could do. All right, thanks. That's, that, that's comfort food. Like in a way it's like, you know, yeah, it's like a, takes you to a happy place. And at least for me, it, you know, kind of does. So, so thanks for having me guys. I enjoyed it. All right. Now it's time for place your bets. How much you want to make a bet? I can throw a football over the mountains. This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame, Georgia tech. First one I have for us, Eric is over under 450 total yards for Notre Dame. Georgia Tech is not very good on defense. 
Um, they are actually the fifth worst pass efficiency defense in the country. They're 114th in total defense, so they give up a lot of yards. Uh, it's just whether Notre Dame's going to maybe try to slow down the game with running the ball more, knowing that Georgia Tech will, and just maybe you get fewer yards that way. But I'm going over. I, I think Notre Dame is going to get over 450. Yeah, Georgia Tech opponents have totaled at least 487 yards in each of the last six games, which is just outrageous. Um, Notre Dame has had more than 400 yards six times this season. Um, so I, I think they'll be able to do it. I, I, unless I mean, They didn't rack it up against Virginia, but they were playing a slower game. Right, yeah. And I think, I mean, the only, re- the only way they don't get it in my mind this time is if for some reason, like, they're so, like, efficient. Kind of similar to Virginia where, like, they were just scoring. I mean, they scored three of the f- four drives to start the game. Um, and uh, if they if they sort of add those points up pretty quickly, then I think they might put, put take their foot off the gas. But even then, I think, I think uh, the backups will be able to get some yards against Georgia Tech, too. So I will go over. Next one, more all-purpose yards. Jameer Gibbs, the Georgia Tech running back, or Kyron Williams? Well, Gibbs has more ways that he can get it. Um, I, I think some of it depends on Notre Dame's coverage on special teams and right. whether you get touchbacks and that kind of thing. That takes a lot of yards away. I mean, Gibbs is way up there. I think he's second in the country, and I think Kyron surged into the top 20. Uh, but I think Gibbs is just going to have more opportunities. Notre Dame is spreading the ball around a lot, and I think these are the kind of game – you know, Kyron only got 14 carries against Virginia. Right. Um, And I think as they go down the stretch, if Notre Dame is leading by a lot, Brian Kelly is going to have a tendency to do that, cut down on his carries to save some wear and tear on him for the postseason. So, Gibbs – yeah, Gibbs certainly – the kick returner thing, I think, is what gives Gibbs the advantage because I think there are probably plenty of Notre Dame kickoffs as well. Like you mentioned, the sort of coverage or if there's touchbacks will will be a big factor in that. But I also think Georgia Tech's going to punt a lot. Not that Kyra Williams – he's not going to get as many punt return yards as Jameer Gibbs would get kick return yards likely. But I'm still going to go with, with Kyron Williams. I, I just think that Notre Dame's going to do a pretty good job on him defensively, him being Jameer Gibbs. Um, and I think – Georgia Tech's defense set, um, could give up a couple big runs to Kyron Williams, and that could that could aid him. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take Kyron Williams, and what I would think would be a little bit of an upset here. He's Kyron's averaging 132.7 all-purpose yards per game, and Gibbs is averaging averaging 168 yards. Next one I have for us, Eric, is over under two and a half passing touchdowns for Jack Cohn. Given that. Georgia Tech is the fifth worst pass efficiency defense in the country. I will go over on that. I think they'll get some red zone passing TV TDs and they'll get at least one long passing TD. All right. I got, I got some trivia for you here. So Jack Cohn threw three touchdown passes against Virginia. What, what was before that game? What was the last time he threw for more than one touchdown pass? Mm, 
I don't know without <laughs> cheating. So I would say it, it seems like it'd be at Wisconsin based on your question, but I'm going to say Florida State. <laughs> it's Purdue. So you're in this, you're in the right neighborhood. It's been, okay. I was, I was shocked when I saw that. I was like, I don't think Jack Cohen's been playing bad, but I, I didn't think that he would hadn't, hadn't thrown as, as few passing touchdowns lately as, as he had. So um, I'm going to go to take the under for that reason, even though I think Georgia Tech's passing defense is bad. Uh, they have allowed 2.2 uh, passing touchdowns per game, um, but I will, I'll, I'll take the under. I think he'll get to two, and they won't need him to get to more than that, so I, I will take the under. Next bet, will Notre Dame lose a turnover? Georgia Tech is 74th in turnovers gained, so that doesn't seem scary. And Notre Dame is 57th in turnovers lost. I'll say, yeah, there will be a turnover. All right. Yeah, I'm going to predict no. Georgia Tech, I think Notre, Dame, Notre Dame's turnover history is they have eight interceptions versus five fumbles. Um, and Georgia Tech only has three interceptions defensively. So I, I think the chances of Jack Cohn throwing an interception are low. Um, and I, I just don't, I'm not, I'm not confident enough in that Georgia Tech will force a fumble to predict that. So I will. Eric Allen would like a word with me. <laughs> All right. Uh, next one we have speaking of safeties, more tackles Houston Griffith, DJ Brown, Ramon Henderson, or Xavier Watts? That's a tough question because, you know, all tackles aren't created equal. Right. <laughs> like uh, I asked Brian Kelly about Prince Collie because I saw four tackles. That's what J.D. Bertrand had. Um, but some of those just kind of running around and running into people. Um, Henderson and Henderson got a lot of snaps against um, Virginia. And Xavier Watts got a lot of those tackles, his tackles without a ton of snaps. Right. So who are those four? Got a real stumper. I'm going to say DJ. Okay. I think that is a good pick. I, I'm i going to go with Xavier Watts just because he does it at such a high frequency. He also has special teams opportunities, and he seems to be pretty good at that as well. I'm not really sure what the rotation is going to look like. I'm curious to see what that does look like. I have theories of what – I, w- I would like to see, um, but I, I'm not sure. And, and obviously we're thinking that this might be a pretty lopsided game. So there's there, I, you would think that the Ramon Henderson and Xavier Watts should be playing a lot regardless. So um, I think uh, um, Xavier Watts is going to be my pick there. And lastly, what is your final score prediction for Notre Dame, Georgia Tech? I'm going to go 38-17. Sometimes these senior games get so uh, emotional and so forth, but I just think Notre Dame is an ascending team, and I think they'll be right around the spread or a little bit above it. So 38-17 for me. I think this is a first because I have the exact same prediction, Eric. So I have Notre Dame 38, Georgia Tech 17. So uh, we'll see. (laughs) Hopefully we're right because then we'll both – I guess either way, we either both look like geniuses or we both look like idiots, but – I feel pretty good that this will be um, heavily leaning in Notre Dame's favor, whether or not we're right with the margin in that area. Um, we'll see. But 38-17 seems like a good prediction if you ask the two of us. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. 
That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one is from Dave Hodges at Big underscore D Hodges. What was the thought process and not trying to score at the end of the first half? You know, I don't watch my Twitter um, notifications that much during a game just because I'm pretty busy watching other things. Mm-hmm. But boy, was there some dissatisfaction in that uh, particular strategy. I think no. I think Brian Kelly got conservative there. They had scored three touchdowns in a row on drives. Uh, they got the ball first and ten on their own fifteen with one sixteen left in the half, and they had be- believe two timeouts. Yep. Um, I think Brian was just being conservative and not giving, not getting a turnover there or not uh, giving up the ball quick and maybe getting a punt return in Virginia getting some points before halftime. I thought once they ran the ball on first down and gave themselves a little bit of breathing room that they might try something downfield a little bit. Uh, So I was a little bit surprised, but I think, you know, again, they're not trying to think about, he's not thinking about style points. I mean, that was a game Notre Dame was, you know, with their first team quarterback would have been a different game. And I think they were just, okay, let's, Let's just win the game and uh, not do anything silly here. So that's my guess. I mean, you didn't get asked about it after the game. And and really, I think fans want you to ask those questions. There's so many other things we have to get to. You don't have time to get to those. It's a, Especially on the road, it's a pretty quick press conference. No, yeah. After a 28-3 victory, I'm, I'm not using one of my – Two or yeah. three questions uh, on uh, why didn't you try to score before the end of the first half? Yeah. Um, so, so I can't speak exactly to why they made the decision. I mean, I imagine they were probably comfortable knowing that the defense wasn't going to require them to score points. But I think there's also, I mean, they don't want to give Virginia any sort of momentum because they had really sort of dominated that first half. Um, and if somehow they have a turnover there, then they're in trouble. But I thought they ran it twice with Tyree. Um, to start the drive. Well, they ended up running it three times, but after the first two, they got a first down and they were running like between the first and second play, they did it with some, some tempo to it. So I thought, well, after that first down, then they would start throwing it, but they didn't. So I was a little surprised by that. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, and uh, it, it, it is what it is. I don't know that uh, if that's the thing you're the most upset about after a Notre Dame football game, then I think they're probably doing something right. Next question is from Wayne Oosteroff at W. Oosteroff. Is scoring only 28 points against Virginia good enough? Why don't Brian Kelly teams seem to have a killer instinct? Okay, I appreciate that Wayne gave me the hint to the answer he wants me to answer with his second question. Because <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have said, why don't they have killer instinct if I'm supposed to say, yes, 28 points was enough. <laughs> um, you know, I think 28 points in that game was enough. I, I mean – they, they had a drive with Tyler Buckner where there was a fumbled kind of handoff between him and Logan Diggs near the goal line, and that, that would have made it 35-3. to three. I think it was, you know, in a game where they were favored by five and a half during the week and seven and a half on a kickoff, to win by 25, I think, was enough for people to say, okay, this is a, an improving team. I don't think a touchdown – going to make a difference. And I also think it was really important that Tyler Buckner got work in the second half. I think his reps are pretty important. And, and, and the other players on offense too, 
Um, some of the young receivers, I mean, they play, they're playing a lot of freshmen on offense. So I think that was more important. And, and honestly, as far as killer instinct, the defense had it. I mean, they were killer instinct to the end in terms of having their foot on the gas. So I'm sorry, Wayne, your hint did not push me in that direction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, my first thought was like good enough for who, like, I, I think, and I think there were other questions submitted that were asked similar ways in terms of did this were the did they need style points for the playoff committee against Virginia? And I don't think it makes much of a difference. I think the committee's watching the games and they will know that Notre Dame dominated it um, the same way that they know that Wisconsin they didn't Notre Dame didn't dominate Wisconsin either just because they ended up scoring so many points at the end of the game. Um, would 35 points have been enough because they were a, a Buckner digs fumble away from it being 35 and maybe it's 38 points if they don't go for it on fourth and one um, and miss and miss that and just try for a field goal instead on the first drive. And um, so I, I, would, would that be that big of a difference? I don't know. I, I think uh, to me, like if I were a Notre Dame fan, I would not be more confident that Notre Dame could beat better teams if they scored 42 against Virginia. Like to me that, that, that doesn't necessarily matter because those, those points at the end, I mean, the points, they just don't, I mean, it's not, it's no longer like a high leverage situation. So the, 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 the manner that you needed to score those points in just aren't as impressive to me. So um, I, I think uh, this isn't necessarily a high flying Notre Dame offense. It can score points, but it shouldn't try to pretend to be something that it's not either. So I don't think trying to force itself to put up 50 against Virginia is something that, is necessarily in is in Notre Dame's best interest. Next question is from David Carmichael at David Carr 1967. What's your feeling about Tommy Reese being nominated for the Broyles Award? And then he also has another question that's completely different. Who's your where what's your projected offensive line for next year? Um I thought it was an interesting choice because Notre Dame makes that choice. Right. Um and I guess it, ref, it 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 implies a degree of difficulty in what Tommy had to face this year because the numbers would not suggest that a he's going to get nominated and b that he has any chance of winning because you know people that vote on that are going to look at the bottom line and say well that's the number sixty nine team in total offense number forty in scoring offense and kind of middle of the pack in most of the offensive categories so I think that's a reflection there. If you ask me what I who I would nominate, I would say Mike Elston. I think that that has been the consistent unit, and he's been a rock. And his recruiting, the way he gets that unit to play unselfishly, and they are the best unit on the team. So for me, it's Mike Elston. Uh, do you want to jump in there? And uh, yeah, the yeah. To, to add some clarity for people who might not know, Notre Dame, you can only submit one person. Like they can't, they can't submit more. That's what you're getting at is that that's who yeah. Notre Dame picked. Um, people might not be aware of that. It would be my guess. Um, I even saw like one reporter saying that ex coach for this school was the only coach that this school had on the list. I was like, well, they're only, a, they're only allowed yeah. one school, one coach yeah. on the list. Um, and then, then the list gets whittled down from every school to a certain number of nominees. This year it was 59. I'm not sure if it's always 59 or not, but um, I don't, Tommy Reese won't be a finalist. And I'm not sure that anyone on Notre Dame staff probably would have been either. I, I agree with you that Mike Elston should have probably been nominated. I'm, 
I'd be curious to know, like, when was the last time they nominated Mike Elston as their Broyles Awards candidate, Notre Dame being they in this scenario? Um, so maybe that had some role with it. I mean, Marcus Freeman was just a finalist last year at Cincinnati. Um, and so I, but I don't think his defense this year is necessarily better than that one last year. So I don't think he was going to win the Broyles Award this year. Um, so I, I'm sure there's some sort of inner office inner staff politics that go into who gets the the Broyles award nomination but i'm not really sure how that that works exactly um, the, so. the funniest thing with the Broyles award though was when bob diaco won it yes <laughs> and and uh they were at the one of the award things for manti teo and they panned the audience and put Bob Diaco's name there, but they put Brian Harden's face. <laughs> yeah, it's a Broyles, Broyles Award winner, Bob Diaco, and it's Brian Harden, who is the sports information director for Notre Dame football. So that was pretty funny. That's I think that's the first thing probably Notre Dame football reporters think of when they think of the Broyles Award. Um, so I thought, I mean, I just think, like, I, I did notice people on Twitter yesterday, like, people that are pro Reese are like puffing their chest out. Say, Hey, I thought yeah. Tommy Reese was terrible. And I was like, well, I mean, this doesn't mean that he's the greatest coach in the world that he was Notre Dame's pick. And he's one of 59 nominees. I, I think he's probably having a better season than some people want to give him credit for, but I also don't think he's necessarily a Broyles award finalist either. So um, being nominated, I think it's fine. I don't think it's a, it's a big thing either in either direction. Um, in terms of the projected offensive line next year, what, what are you looking at? Well, it depends if Jarrett Patterson comes back, um, but I'll simplify it whether he comes back or not. He's either the center or Zeke Carell is probably the center. I would say the tackles would be Blake Fisher and Joe Alt. Um, and I would put Blake at the left tackle and Joe Alt at right tackle. And I think the guards would be Andrew Kristoffic and Rocco Spindler but I think they would be challenged by a couple of guys that played tack play tackle now. And that's Tosh Baker and Michael Carmody, because again, it's the, it's the top five players. It's not necessarily who's the best guard or who's the best center. And I think you could make the argument that you might be able to, if Jarrett's not back, um, maybe take a look at Andrew Christophic at center. And then that would open up a spot because I'm not sure if Z Carell's one of the top five guys, or I'm not sure if he will be next year. He had his chance this year and, you know, maybe center is just the best place for him, but I think he's got to make friends with Matt Bayless in the weight room and get stronger if he's going to be a starter for them next year. Yeah. I, I think he can be a good enough center that he can be one of those, those five guys um, because it, it, because it does matter what position you're playing in that evaluation. Um, because I think he could be a better center than um, probably those other guys. And then maybe, so I think you're sort of weighing, okay, is, is Zeke Carell a better center than Andrew Kristoffic is a center versus Andrew Kristoffic a better guard than Michael Carmody at guard or something like that. And so th that's sort of the equation you're looking at. But I agree, the same. I have the same names as you. I think the, the, the one thing, like Tosh Baker as a guard, I, I'm not sure that that makes much sense or is, it would be – I think he would have to change a lot in terms of the way he plays football to be able to play guard. Um, I did like what I saw from Michael Carmody early in the season. He wasn't able to sort of continue that. I think he could potentially be a, a pretty solid guard as well. So um, I think I would look at him competing with Rocco Spindler um, as the, as the other guard 
um, with Andrew Christoffic. So I guess when I was seeing that com- comparison earlier, I think you're probably talking about Rocco and, and Michael Carmody versus Christoffic and, and, and Michael Carmody at guard when you're weighing the, who's the fifth best lineman is. Um, left tackle, right tackle, I'm not sure how that plays out. I mean, Joe Alt has been good at left tackle. I, I at, Just at this point, I would just give the benefit of the doubt to Blake Fisher because that's who they liked at left tackle going into the season better. Um, but maybe uh, Joe Alt is actually a better left tackle than Blake Fisher is, and Blake can be a very good right tackle. I don't think there's anything wrong with either of those guys playing either of those positions. The one thing that's kind of interesting about Alt is, you know, some people are very – and we've had Aaron Taylor where left and right was a big deal to him. For Alt, it's not a big deal at all. He's every bit as comfortable on either side, he said. And a lot of that is because he played tight end so much of his life. Sure. Uh, he doesn't have a preference. All right. Next question is from at Coffee Dark Roast. Bo Bauer seems to have fresh legs. Should he start over Drew White the last two regular season games and then figure out the bowl game slash playoff? Did Bauer do enough this season, especially in the Virginia game, to start in the playoffs, or will White be ready to play after some rest? Well, Bauer may have played probably more than Coffee Dark Roast thinks. He's got 271 snaps to White 393 now. Drew didn't play in the game because he had the flu, not because of his injury, which is a torn PCL, which they have to manage. But I think this is a really good question, also also considering how well Bo Bauer played in that game. Um, Is Bo Bauer where he is now, both both skill-wise and health-wise, a better player than Drew White with a torn PCL. I think that's something Notre Dame needs to evaluate, and they'll have the opportunity because they play both of those guys, uh, and and they'll get a better feel for that. But they're definitely managing Drew White. The thing that I like about Bo Bauer is he's a throwback. If this were 2012, he'd be on the field every down. Um, and it's not 2012, but he's made himself into a much more complete linebacker. Drew White, I love the way he diagnoses plays, and it gives him like a step quicker to tackling. He's a great leader, great communicator. So there's pluses on both, but Bo Bauer got my attention in the Virginia game. Yeah, I think specific like senior day, Drew White is going to start senior day. I mean, he's a, He's the captain. Obviously, it's technically a senior day for Bo Bauer as well when we have so many classes matched up as seniors. Um, but I, I think that there's probably no chance that he's not starting unless unless he physically can't go. I mean, the fact that he w- was willing to put himself out there for the Navy game, I think he deserves the right to be the starter for, sure. for the Georgia Tech game. Um we don't know what he's going to look like playing against normal offenses with his PCL injury. I, he was able to do that against Navy. And I don't, I don't think he played poorly, but I don't think he was the reason that their defense was played well either necessarily. Uh, I think, like you mentioned, there's probably a chance that Bo Bauer, well, I, you mentioned that he's been playing a lot of snaps. I think there's probably a chance that Bo Bauer ends up playing more snaps than, than Drew White if, if Drew White is struggling. Um, but I just don't think Drew White's going to get flat out benched. I think there should be plenty of opportunities to get Bauer in the game. I'm, I haven't studied this enough to know for sure, but I, I think there's probably some things that Drew White 
does in terms of reliability and consistency with his run fits that I'm not sure that Bo Bauer gives you, even though Bo Bauer is a physical guy and has the ability to do that. I'm not sure his consistency is at that level. And I think he maybe thrives in sort of these niche roles where I, although he did do that well against Virginia, but Virginia also doesn't really run the ball very well. So that wasn't necessarily um, the same sort of a, a, a balanced offense that Notre Dame was, I mean, it was a bad offense. I think they were going against quite frankly with, with that quarterback that they had, Virginia was playing without Brennan Armstrong. So um, I think, I think it's probably more likely that you stick with Drew White as your starter for the next two games. And then if you feel like that's, if you feel like you need to make a move for the postseason, then you maybe maybe make that move to to let Bauer start in the bowl or, or the playoff game. Yeah, I think speaking of French French legs, fresh legs, um, the guy that needs some oui, oui. Work, <laughs> oui, ooh la la, the guy that needs the guy that needs relief is JD Bertrand at yes. five hundred ninety four snaps. He's at two hundred more than Drew White. And the guy that really is a natural relief guy there is Prince Collie. And, and finally, he did get significant snaps. It was 36 to 23 JD in that game. And I think the splits need to look like that down the stretch. JD needs a break uh, with Maris Leofow and Simon getting hurt uh, at the beginning of the season. Th- that's going to be a good move. So you can maximize JD in the postseason game. Absolutely. Next question is from at Irish Zibby. I know the goal is to still is still to win the final two games and make the playoffs, but would you consider starting Xavier Watts and Ramon Henderson at the safety positions the last two games? They appeared to play well against Virginia and both could use the experience for next year. Um, I would start I would definitely start DJ Brown. I, I don't think you yes. can take him away from that equation because even Ramon was mentioning in his post-game interview that he got that interception because Ramon adjusted where he was lining up. Um, before yeah, the yeah DJ told him where he's like, yeah, fake like you're doing this and we're going to, we're going to fool him here. And that's how it worked. Right. So I think you need his communication and leadership on the field. So th- then it's a matter of kind of splitting things up between Ramon Henderson, Houston Griffith, and then how much Xavier Watts you can get on the field. Um, and right now I don't think Houston Griffith is playing well enough to hold off those other guys and hold that exclusive. I'd like to see a little bit more Henderson. Uh, you know, they're not playing great passing offenses the next couple of weeks, but, but then you're also not risking as much by getting those guys experience. So that, that's how I would go. Houston Griffith would really have to do something to, to convince me that he warrants those reps down the stretch. Yeah, I would, I would start DJ Brown and Ramon Henderson together and put DJ Brown in the spot where he rotated a lot with Houston Griffith and Houston Griffith's role shrunk pretty considerably against Virginia. And I, I think that might be the way it continues to go. So I don't know that you start Xavier Watts and Ramon Henderson together because DJ Brown, I think is still too valuable. I know he might not be the name many people associate with successful safety play at Notre Dame, but I think he's better than he is given credit for publicly, um, at least from the fan side of things. He scores well almost every week on those pro football focused college. Uh, right. Grades. Yeah. And he, I, he, I mean, he has three interceptions too. Like he's, he's made plays at times too. Now they haven't been like in clutch moments necessarily, but uh, I think he he's, 
he knows what's going on out there. He has a good sense of things. He is a good leader. I think he can, um, like you mentioned, Ramon Henderson was talking about. I asked Ramon about DJ specifically, um, and then he then he brought him up on the when I asked about the interception, he brought up DJ on his own. Um, so I think uh, I think that that's the, the the mix that I would like to see. I think they the, they need to continue to work Xavier Watts in there, and I think they will. Um, but I don't know that it's going to necessarily be at the detriment of of reps for for DJ Brown. Next question is from Matt Malham at M Malham. At this point, would you take Logan Diggs over Will Shipley? Losing Shipley when he chose Clemson was a huge blow, but maybe Diggs ends up being better. My question back would be, can I have both? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think you're picking a, one guy's good and one guy's not good. You're picking degrees of goodness here right. and splitting hairs. Um when you look at the stats, Logan's played in five games. He's got 197 yards on 37 carries. His average is a little bit higher than Will Shipley's, 5.3 to 4.7. Shipley's got more touchdowns. He's played in seven out of Clemson's 10 games. He had an injury. Shipley's got a, um, you know more catches. But Shipley's also been in a position to do more because he's their number one back and Diggs is 2A or 2B. Um so I, I like them both. Um, Pick one, Eric. I, I'm going to go with Logan Diggs because of his hurdle. Uh, <laughs> I just think he fits in better with what this team is doing right now. Shipley may very well end up being the better of the two players, but I'm buying Logan Diggs stock right now. So, um, you know, I mean, for a guy that didn't play in the first five games to be this – impactful in a reserve role in the next five has impressed me a lot. So I'm staying with Diggs. I, I'm not ready to, to make that leap yet. I think I would, I would uh, stick with Will Shipley over Logan Diggs if I had to choose one. Um, that's not to say that Diggs can't have the better career, but I think it's too early to say that a guy that even Notre Dame liked less than Will Shipley uh, would be the guy that I would choose. Notre Dame would have been happy to have taken – I'm definitely giving him the hometown discount. <laughs> uh, Notre Dame would have gladly taken Will Shipley in and uh, been happy with its writing back situation. Um, so I think Will Shipley, he's given, given a lot of opportunities, but he's been given these opportunities in a worse offense, and uh, he's doing all right. He's still averaging 4.7 yards per carry. He's not been a slouch. Um, and, uh, I mean, to compare that, Kyron Williams is averaging five yards per carry. Um, so Logan Dix is averaging 5.3 um, in his in his small smaller windows, but I think he's being put in advantageous situations. He being Logan Diggs, um, whereas Will Shipley is asked to be more of a workhorse, and that's a tougher task. I would I think, in my opinion, so I would still take Shipley, but um, I think Notre Dame has a really good running back in Logan Diggs, and I think they'll be just fine without having Will Shipley. But if given the choice, I would still still opt for for Shipley. And each team has had offensive line issues this year. Right. But Logan didn't have to go through them because he got to, he got to come in when the line got things figured out. <laughs> uh, next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib 43. It's been widely discussed that Kyron Williams is the best running back at Notre Dame since Jerome Bettis. And although there might be some recency bias, I'd put him on my Mount Rushmore of Notre Dame running backs of my lifetime, which is 42 years. Who would be the other two? And he's, mentioned a few Pinkett, Denton, Walker, Jones, Brooks, who would you, 
put on your Mount Rushmore of running backs. And I guess this is assuming that we have to agree with him that Kyron Williams and Jerome Bettis should be on there as well. Okay, so he's 42 years old. I'll let, I'll let you answer this first because I didn't – I missed this question, to be honest with you. I didn't see it. Um, I think it's hard for me to say as someone who didn't watch many of those guys play. Um, so most of my – I mean, I've seen highlights and stuff, but I'm not as familiar with their their careers as, as someone Chris's age maybe. But um, I think Autry Denton probably belongs on there as the career leader in rushing yards. Um, and then to me, I think it's hard to leave Josh Adams off the list. He averaged 6.6 yards per carry in his career, which is one and a half more than Denson. Um, I think he's fifth on the all-time list in terms of career rushing yards, um, having played three seasons at Notre Dame. Um, but I'm sure in picking those two guys, I'm being a little bit dis- disrespectful to Pinkett and Walker, Jones, and Brooks by suggesting that. I think the one, Vegas Ferguson. I don't know. Is it? Do you say Vegas? How do you say his first name? Do you know Vegas Ferguson? It yeah. is Vegas. Vegas Ferguson. His. Yeah. I did look like his. His career was like right on the border of the forty-two years. So I think we have to exclude him from this this conversation. But everything, everyone passed him. So seventy-nine would be forty-two years ago. Um, and, I, and I think Ferguson was still playing, but he had already played before that. Um, when I was looking into some of the statistics. I mean, I, I'm going to do this very much off the top of my head. Pinkett's numbers are really difficult to dispute. He's so far up in a lot of the leaders, and he played for Jerry Faust, which was a handicap. (laughs) Um, The thing about the Holtz era backs was they played a lot of them, and they were multi-dimensional. So Ricky Waters played some flanker, and he played running back. Rocket played wide receiver, and he played running back. Yeah, Tony Brooks, who is really good. Reggie Brooks has to be on there. Statistic-wise, Reggie Brooks belongs there. His average, you know, he was a he was a defensive back when he came to Notre Dame, but when they flipped him over to offense, he was special. Uh, you know, and Autry Denson, it's hard not to put your career rusher on there, although I think, you know, if Autry was on this team, Kyron beats him out. Um so the, those would be mine. But I, I I glanced at that question and then I didn't, didn't <laughs> you look thinking back. About it. Yeah, hey, but I, those holds guy, those holds guys are hard because yeah, I mean Jerome Bettis's numbers, like he doesn't stand out statistically in terms of those guys when I was looking at the like career statistics is but just, they all played together. They right, were all right. on the team at the same time. Right, right. So yeah, so they, they were they were uh um holding each other back in terms of adding up the statistics. I, I, right. I get that. So I think, it, so that's why it's hard for me to, cause I wasn't sitting there watching those guys to see, okay, I like this part of Jerome Bettis's game. Cause that's just, that just predates my uh, Notre Dame football watching uh, knowledge. I got a story about Jerome Bettis. So <laughs> I was the big 10 writer at the time and I had kind of caught bits and pieces of him maybe as a freshman or early in his career. And, Bill Belinsky was our Notre Dame football beat writer at the time, and he gave up that position to start Irish Sports Report, which was a publication that the South Bend Tribune had. And in that spring, Al Lessar and I kind of split the split the reps going to practice every day. And that was in the era where you went to practice every day and you could see everything in the spring. And I remember the first time seeing Bettison practice going, Wow. Um, and I, and you, with Lou Holtz, 
if you want to interview him after practice, you had to jump on the golf cart with him and ride back to his office. You try to tape tape it, and all you could hear is wind. <laughs> the wind. You try yeah, to write yeah. things down, and it's jostling. But but the quote I can remember is I said, "Wow, Jerome Bettis." I said, um, "He's faster than I thought." And Lou goes, "Well, I'm not sure if he's faster than you thought, or people aren't in a." real hurry to catch up with him. <laughs> That's funny. That's a good one. Uh, next question is from Derek Gerber at Gerbs Irish 2 As of today, Ohio State is almost a three-touchdown favorite against a top-10 Michigan State, and Notre Dame is only a 15-point favorite against 3-7, and seven, bottom of the ACC, Georgia Tech. In your opinion, does that show you how big the gap is between Notre Dame and the top three teams, how overrated the Big Ten is, or do you take it as strictly money betting purposes? I personally always think there's something telling with the betting lines on, a, on how a team is performing or how the outside audience sees them playing. Well, yeah, I think, I think what Derek mentions, I think it's a perception of how the outside audience sees them playing because the whole point of a betting line is to get equal money on both sides. So you want to set that line where that would be, uh, you would get that. Now, having said that, um, Notre Dame is an ascending team. I think some of these other teams are much more established and much more, you know, consistent with with their performances from week to week. Um, I had, um, I got a, uh, from one of the betting houses, they sent me, odds last week and i wrote about this last week when we had our subscriber only stuff um and notre dame was a pretty pretty um big underdog to alabama georgia and ohio state i mean double digits and they were underdog to everybody else that was ahead of them except for michigan state um and so I think that's an accurate reflection of where the team was in that snapshot. Now, those odds, those lines, theoretical lines, because I asked the betting house to give me, add Notre Dame and the two Michigan schools into that. They didn't initially do that. And uh, so it was interesting. Michigan State was the only team that had longer odds against those big, big teams and, and would be not favored against Notre Dame. That may change in a, a couple of weeks, but I still think, you know, Ohio State, whether they deserve to be in the playoff on the field, from an eye test standpoint, what you see week after week, they're better than Notre Dame. Now, could Notre Dame beat them? Yes, under the right circumstances, but Ohio State should be favored in that game based on what they've done this year. Um, you know, when we were talking with Bruce earlier about Alabama, it's it's hard to picture that Cincinnati is a better team than Alabama, even though I have Cincinnati ahead of them in the poll, because what you do on the field has to matter. But when you're just looking at the eye test, you're like, wait a second, could what would happen if Alabama played them? So, yeah, I mean, I think. The, there's certainly a gap between Notre Dame and Ohio State in terms of talent. And I think there's probably a gap in terms of the public backing of Ohio State in terms of gambling. 
Um, Ohio State has a very big fan base as well, and uh, they that can skew the line in favor of the Buckeyes. Um, I think. I think. I, I I try not to get too wrapped up in the gambling lines. To me, I think it's I think it's there's there's interesting information that can be cold from them, but I don't think it's like the final the final word in any way, but I, I, the number one goal of those lines is to make money, um, not to be the arbiter of college football rankings. So I think you have to sort of keep them in the right perspective. And um, I think, I think it does say, I don't know if that it says the big 10 is overrated. I think it certainly indicates that, that people think Michigan state is overrated. Um, and uh, computers don't like Michigan state. Yeah, I mean, if you look at this statistically, the game against Michigan against Michigan it was probably a game that Michigan State should have lost, but they didn't. They won, and so they they are rewarded for that. Although <laughs> don't ask the college football playoff committee to reward them. Um, but uh, I think uh, I'm curious to see how it plays out. I, I, you would think Michigan State's playing style would allow them to keep it close to prevent like a that spread to be that big, but. Um, Maybe that's not the case, or maybe there's some good money to be made on on taking uh, Michigan State there. I don't know. Michigan State has a couple good things in their their statistical profile, which seem to be things that are predictors of how you would do down the road. Having Kenneth Walker the third right. is huge, and their quarterback has a really good high passing efficiency rating. The bad news for him is he doesn't get to face his own defense because they're not very good at pass defense. And that's, <laughs> and that's what Ohio State does well. Right. That So that's going to be a very interesting game this weekend. All right. Next question is from at John Varvel. Have you considered the possibility of a Notre Dame-Ohio State championship game and a rematch to open the season next year? Do you know if that has ever happened? Um. I would be really surprised if Notre Dame and Ohio State were in the championship game this year. I would be surprised if either of them were in the championship, mm-hmm. uh, less so if, our, if Ohio State were, although their defense leaves something to be desired. Um, and has there ever been um, a championship game and then they open against each other? I don't think so, but I I didn't. Do you know, Tyler? I do not know. I don't. I, that, that was – there was no quick results to that on Google. So um, it would have taken more time. And I think I, I would, I would want some clarity. Like if he meant specifically just BCS and college football playoff title games, but even then, like I, I, it just doesn't seem very likely to have happened even right. going beyond that. Unless you like go, I, I don't even know what you would consider championship he, games. I've seen rematches the next year, but not in the opener. Right. Yeah. Like I think the one that came to mind immediately was certainly Alabama LSU when they played, for the national championship. And then they played each other into the next season. That, that right. was the end of the 2011 season for the championship. And then they played each other in the regular season, but that wasn't till November. I looked at that one specifically, but I'm not sure how many instances that have, there have been of that um, either. Uh, next question is from at drew Brennan 77. If Andy were not a lot, were to not allow a touchdown to Georgia tech, that would be three games in a row with no TDs allowed. How do you think the playoff committee would look at that in relation to Notre Dame and their overall ranking? Seems no one is really talking about Notre Dame with two games in a row with no touchdowns given up. Okay, that I always get stuck on part of the question. I wish they would truncate it at some point. <laughs> so um, no one is talking about it. Then you didn't read my story last Sunday night because I had that pretty prominent in there that it was the first time since 
Boston College and Wake Forest in 2012 that Notre Dame had done that. Now, I cannot speak for everybody else on the beat because I don't read everything else on the beat. Uh, so I don't know if nobody's my, talking or if you just have your fingers in your ears. My, my guess would be that he's talking like nationally is what, I, what I, that was what I was thinking. That he's thinking like Notre Dame isn't getting the respect for not giving up two touchdowns. That's what, that's how I perceived it. At least I could be well, off. Why I think it's not more of a puff your chest out thing is because it came against a Navy team. That's not a vintage Navy offense like 2019 was. Right. And then a Virginia team without the, nation's leader in total offense being on the sideline. And and the game that preceded those two was one in which Notre Dame gave up the fifth most off, uh, most yardage in the Brian Kelly era. So I think people want to just be patient before um, getting too crazy about that to see if they can be consistent and this is a trend. Uh, you know, Georgia Tech and Stanford are not powerful offenses. Georgia Tech is a much better test than Stanford is um, in terms of that. And if you can put four games together, even if they're not great offenses, that's that's an accomplishment. But I think it's too early to call it a turning point. Let's see how they handle a very balanced Georgia Tech offense with some some good weapons in it. Yeah, I, I in my opinion, doing so without Kyle Hamilton is an accomplishment for Notre Dame, but I don't know that it necessarily makes it an accomplishment like worth the committee rethinking their, their evaluation of Notre Dame. I think the committee is probably more interested in figuring out whether or not Kyle Hamilton would be available to play in a playoff game than they probably are of like Notre Dame didn't give up a touchdown to Virginia without its quarterback starting quarterback. Um, So I think, uh, to me, in the greater picture, I, I still think Notre Dame is going to be held back by a lack of a true signature win. I, I feel like it's going to be really hard for for Notre Dame to get into the playoff, even if chaos happens. I just feel like it's going to be – I mean, there are certain uh, examples of chaos that you were rattling off to to Bruce Feldman that I think well, – I, I wrote Dame... about it, and, and I don't think it's it's outside the realm of possibility, but I, but I don't know that all those things are going to happen either. I think right. maybe two of them – one of them could happen out of those three. Right, right. So I think uh, I we'll, we'll see. I think we'll all find out the answer soon enough. And I, but I don't think I'm not sure that Notre Dame is going to be able to do much in these last two games to to make a difference in what Notre Dame's. And those uh, two games will hurt its strength of schedule. Right, and so it's it's more or less about what what happens everywhere else than what happens at Notre Dame, in my opinion. Uh, next question is from Adam Adam Birch at ND Birchy thirteen. I think you go to pl- the playoff no matter what. If we were to get into a New Year's Six bowl and lost, in parentheses, I don't think we would, to whoever it is close, I feel it would be way more damaging to the program than getting destroyed by Georgia. What say you? I would agree. I think uh, they've been able to sell the playoff no matter what the result is. And usually – the team that's won it when Notre Dame has been in it has obliterated the other team they've played as well. I think, uh, you know, losing to Wake Forest um, by any margin isn't the selling point that, hey, we played Georgia. Georgia smacked around everybody else, um, including us. You're one of the missing pieces that we need to 
compete with Georgia for the national championship in a year or two. I think that's a much better selling point. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that you want to get into the playoff and if you get spanked by Georgia, whatever, that's, that's not something that is necessarily going to make a huge difference in being held against you. But I, I don't think losing to Wake Forest or whether it's you end up playing a big 10 team like Michigan or Michigan state or something, if uh, Cincinnati gets into the playoff, I don't think that's going to do any damage. I, I don't, I don't think bowl losses matter that much, quite frankly. I think um, a new year six bowl win. Well, that wasn't the question. He said, which is more damaging. He didn't say if it was damaging. He just said, I feel it would be, he said it would be way more, way more damaging. damaging. Yeah. It would be way more. And I'm saying it would not be way and more. And then he damaging. said, what say you? <laughs> uh, but I'm saying it would not be way more damaging. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. I, I just I, thought I, he was asking the degree, which was <laughs> the worst, worst scenario. No, I, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, so I don't I, think either one is going to spank them. So right. No. I think, and, and I even a New Year's Six Bowl win, I don't think it's going to matter that much either. Other other than like not having to hear the stupid line about Notre Dame hasn't won a New Year's yeah. Six Bowl since whenever, um, yeah. you get get that monkey off your back. But other than that, I don't know that it changes like program perception if you beat Wake Forest in the Peach Bowl, um, or or if you lose to Wake Forest in the Peach Bowl. I don't think I don't think it's that big of a difference either way. Next question is an email from Ken in Pensacola. Let's assume that Notre Dame finishes the season with an 11-1 record. What would you like? You can only choose one answer. And here are our four options. Compete for a national championship against Alabama or Georgia. Compete for a national championship and lose by two points. Play in a New Year's Bowl and win by seven points. Or have Kyron Williams win the Heisman. And, and Ken is the one who keeps asking me if whether or not Kyron Williams should be a Heisman finalist. So I assume that's why he threw number four in there. Right. So for me, that's an easy choice. Compete for a national championship against Alabama or Georgia. Yeah. That's mine. I, I guess I, I would I would like to lose by two points to Alabama or Georgia. So I don't know if that would be cheating and taking number two. Uh, as that would be – he didn't specify who would you lose by two points for. So that would be the only – I mean, obviously lose by less to whoever it is I think is, is important. And I, I guess I'm not certain if this means that one and two, you'd also get a playoff win um, to play for the championship in the championship game. You would. You... That's what I'm implying is that you won a playoff if you're competing for a national championship against one of those two. Right. That's how I read although, it. Although, so. Right. Although the likelihood, I guess you could play. You could play. And he doesn't rule out that you could win that game. True. Yeah, that's true. You could. Yeah. Number one, you could compete against. To me, the first one can't happen in a probably a final because you probably play one of those two teams in the semifinal um or you would play georgia in a semifinal and uh, i I guess maybe alabama could be one if they beat georgia i guess um because i don't i don't know that florida or notre dame is going to get up to three if it gets in the playoff um but anyways we're we're getting into semantics i think get get in and compete for a national championship and if you lose you lose but yeah i suppose if if one gives you the if you have a distinct possibility to, to beat Although I guess you know what I don't think Notre Dame has a chance in hell in beating Alabama or Georgia this season, so I guess I would choose two over one because I just don't think there's any way that Notre Dame beats Alabama or Georgia, um, and I'd rather be guaranteed a win in that in the semifinal and a loss to to whoever you play in the the championship game by two points. Uh, two more questions. One from Bobby Bancroft. Looks like 
Kelly and Reese have figured out this two quarterback setup as the season progressed. Do you think it can help in the future or is each two quarterback setup its own unique thing? Also, do you see the possibility of a two quarterback system next year with Tyler and or Drew Pine and a graduate quarterback? Um, so I've, I asked Brian Kelly at one point this year, and I, it was either in a Monday press conference or a Thursday zoom about whether his past experience with this helped him. And it was one of those where if I asked him that question on a one-on-one in an off season, I would have gotten a much better answer. There's just, it's kind of like in some of my chats, I don't want to do the research. I don't want to, because I don't want to disrupt the flow of the chat. It's too broad of a question that I asked him and it would be too long of an answer. And he just kind of, you know, it wasn't a word salad. He just didn't give me um, the answer I was looking for. Uh, But I know from having talked to him before and having covered these things before, there are lessons that he has learned from those situations in terms of how you handle the locker room, and that kind of stuff, how you handle team chemistry. But in terms of the dynamic in the game and the dynamic of the two quarterbacks, everyone's different. Um, So there's some things that can help you from past experience, and there's some things that are going to be unique. As far as do you see the possibility of a two-QB system next year with Tyler and Pine or grad QB, I don't because I don't know what Pine or the grad QB would give you that Tyler doesn't. Um, They recruited Tyler Buckner because they felt like he could be the next great dual threat quarterback at Notre Dame. They thought this is a guy that can get us to the playoff and win playoff games. So I don't know how a two quarterback system would enhance that vision and enhance that reality. Yeah, I, I don't. I think every situation is different. Um, there's certainly lessons that can be learned from each situation as as Brian Kelly experiences them. And obviously, this isn't the first time he's he's dealt with this before. Um, but I think the goal next year is to have one quarterback leading the way. If if not, that means Tyler Buckner hasn't taken taken the required steps to lead the offense for the whole game. And then maybe you'd entertain playing Drew Pine and bringing Buckner in. But I don't think that's ideal. I think I'd almost rather you just stick with Drew Pine then if that, that is how you felt. Like you, if you felt like you couldn't give the whole offense to Tyler Buckner yet, then um, I don't know. I, it would, it, it would be very strange for like Tyler Buckner to need like two years of partial offensive work to prepare to be the quarterback. I, I just don't know how much that would be in Notre Dame's best interest or in Tyler Buckner's best interest to make that happen. So I, I don't, I don't necessarily see that as a realistic option for next year, but Crazier things certainly have happened. Lastly, we have an email from Charles W. Wolf with senior day here. Can you break down who you think is likely to come back for a fifth year or who may take advantage of the COVID year of eligibility? Um, It's hard to do this really succinctly. Um, Let me set it up and try to do it succinctly. Let me try to set it up. You have to first kind of deal with the scholarship numbers. Notre Dame's at 81 now. They have 22 verbal commitments. I think they will add three more to this class, whether it be high school recruits or grad transfers. So that's just, that gets me up to 
um, 106. And I think there's 11 real easy people that either don't have eligibility or they're not coming back for a sixth year. So that knocks you down to 95. So really then you're looking at, and I think there'll be a couple underclassmen that transfer. There always is. So that gets you down to 93. Um, so, you, so then you're trying to subtract. So let me just try to tell you the people that I think are the most likely to come back. I think Tariq Bracey, Justin Adam Malola, DJ Brown, Paul Mawala, Avery Davis. Uh, I think Austin and Lindsay will come back um, or a combination of two out of Austin, Lindsay Wilkins. I think Notre Dame is going to get lucky and get either Jarrett Patterson or Isaiah Foskey to come back. Um, but, you know, both of those guys could go. And, and then you know, there are some other names, you know, um, Jason Adam Alola and um, Shane Simon, uh, Houston Griffith, uh, Takis, Dirksen. You know, those are going to be guys that are kind of on the fence in terms of whether Notre Dame wants them back and in terms of whether they want to come back because the numbers will be tight like they usually are. All right. my So my succinct way of doing it is I have three categories, likely staying, could return, which I'm not really sure which way. I mean, I have probably I could lean one way or the other for these guys are likely gone. So the likely staying category to me is Braden Lindsay and the, uh, in, in no particular order, Braden Lindsay, DJ Brown, Kevin Austin Jr., Joe Wilkins Jr., Justin Adamalola, Paul Mawala, George Takis, and Tariq Bracey as likely staying. Could return, I have Avery Davis, Isaiah Pryor, Bo Bauer, Shane Simon, and Jason Adamalola. And for likely gone, I have Houston Griffith, Drew White, Josh Lug, Myron Tongavailoa Amosa, Sebo Flemister, Jarrett Patterson, John Dirksen. Um, and then Michael Vincent, Michael Vincent isn't a scholarship player, but he's also a guy that could be, could come back, um, as a, for an extra year to be the long sniper, but I, I would imagine he's coming like back. Cone Madden and door on that list. No, well, those guys can't come back. Right. Cone right, can't, right. Right. right yeah, yeah. That's yeah. yeah. So I didn't, I didn't include them. I only included guys that could, could actually gotcha. come back. So those, that's how I broke that down. So hopefully that's helpful. I mean, most of it's guessing, um, I think, um, and I don't even know that they Notre Dame and those kids all know yet. No, no, I, I don't, th- I, I don't, I don't think so. There's, there's certainly some of those guys are probably undecided, and some of them might not even really th- spend a lot of time thinking about it yet. Um, so there's uh, plenty of decisions ahead to be made. That's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week with a Georgia Tech review and a Stanford preview. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs.